When I am really interested in something, I, I get super focused on that. And I would hear the underground hovering across the line. I would mimic that sound. I think in pictures, I don't think in language. What you probably don't know is that my brain is different than yours. Because I'm autistic. Welcome to episode one of the Drumby Autism Outreach Podcast. This podcast is particularly aimed at parents and professionals living or working with autistic young people or young people who have social and communication difficulties. This podcast is put together by a team based in Lewisham, London. Episode one of this podcast will start with a little section by myself, your host, introducing you to some of my thoughts around setting up this podcast and what we hope to achieve. Our main feature this week is part one of an interview with team member Pete Black, who will be talking to our lead teacher, Sonia, about his own experiences growing up as an autistic young person. We'll round off the podcast with a feature that we'll have every week, which is a recommendation of the week. So I'll start, as is customary, by introducing myself. My name is Charlie, and I'm the newest member of the Lewisham Autism Outreach team. My interests include science fiction, board games, walking my Portuguese water dog, and podcasts. It's rare that you will find me without a podcast playing either on my headphones whilst walking my dog or in the background whilst I do the washing up. In March 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, I decided to take a cautious step from purely listening to podcasts into making my own, firstly as a guest on a podcast by some friends of mine, and then into the wonderful world of recording and releasing my own podcasts. When I joined the team a few weeks ago, I realised I had access to an incredible pool of knowledge about autism from a team that between us have years of experience working with autistic young people in schools, from nurseries right through to adulthood, and a team that also includes autistic people and parents of autistic young people of various ages. It's natural when joining a new team to consider if there's anything new that you might bring to a team, and so I thought I could combine this well of knowledge that I found within my new team members with my hobby of making podcasts and to create the Drumbeat Autism Outreach podcast. The idea of this podcast is as a resource for parents and professionals to learn more about autism and the autistic people who they look after. And whilst the team itself is based in Lewisham, we will be talking quite generally about autism in the episodes to come. With introductions aside, let's get stuck into the main event. You're about to hear an interview between Sonia Gannon, the lead teacher within the outreach team, and Peter Black, a member of the team with first-hand experience of being an autistic man himself. This is part one of a two-part interview. We plan to release the second part in a future podcast. This is an edited version of the interview, which originally went out live on Instagram as part of Autism Awareness Week. The full interview with video is available on the Drumbeat Instagram page at drumbeat underscore outreach. In this first part, Sonia talks to Pete about his early childhood and primary and secondary school experiences. Me and Pete had this idea to do an informal kind of interview where I would be kind of the plastic paddy version of Graham Norton or Terry Wogan for those older viewers. Because we, whenever we're working with young people, we always use as our guide um, autistic 
people who've written about their experiences, who've been able to articulate what worked for them, or who've had an opportunity to reflect back on their childhood and adolescence and kind of school career and give advice and support um, about how we can relate to and engage with and under, better understand, I suppose, uh, the young people we work with. Um, and as we had our own homegrown um, Aspie in the team, do you call yourself an Aspie? Um, I can do. If, if, if it would make you happy, I would call myself an Aspie. <laughs> <laughs> don't do I don't know. It's not, it's, not a term, it's not a term that I that I've particularly used, but it's not one that I find offensive either. So Okay. So we've got a homegrown autistic then in the team. So I thought it would be um, really interesting to have some time to talk directly with Pete about his experiences. And we don't for a second claim that all children are going to be like Pete and that we'll use all the strategies that work for Pete. This is just about thinking about commonalities and um, what growing up was like for one person. Um, and you know try if it's helpful for you to think about how Pete may be similar to your child or have similar needs or differences or strengths then um, that's helpful I hope but also it's just really interesting to have some time to think about one particular person's experience and um, understanding and I know in a lot of our workshops and talks everybody loves the bit where Pete talks or wants to spend more time asking Pete questions so um, this is an opportunity where I get to ask Pete all questions and um, you can all listen in. I thought we'd start with talking to you about where you grew up so um, do you want to tell us a bit about your background and your family? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I was born in January 1984 in Glasgow and uh, I was born to uh, my mum and dad are, well my dad was a minister of the Church of Scotland and um, my mum is a, a language teacher and um, yeah so I grew up, uh, my first year was in Glasgow and then I moved to Fife when I was one nearly two and spent uh, about seven or eight years in Fife and then when I was nine I moved to Aberdeen and lived there till I was uh, 16 when I left home. Um, so yeah, uh, growing up my, my family was, um, we were we were Christian, quite sort of relatively conservative I guess you might, you might say. Um, I don't know. You had a sister didn't you Pete? You've got a sister. I, do. I still do, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've got a sister who's slightly younger than me um, I'm 37 now. Um, my sister's 35, <laughs> so, uh, and I've got three nieces, which is really nice as well. So, that's my kind of family in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. So, what was primary school like for you then? <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Um, honestly. Yeah, I had a horrible time at primary school. I really, really, really found it pretty miserable. Um, I was. Uh, I did quite, I was doing quite well with regards to schoolwork. I didn't find schoolwork a particular challenge at that stage. Um, and I did, did pretty well, you know, kind of academically, but I really, really struggled with, uh, with bullying and um, with numerous kind of uh, phobias, being scared about things, being scared of things. 
um, extreme nervousness. And, and that all happened. That that all happened at primary school. Yeah, I mean, really, from the age of kind of two or three onwards, I was, you know, felt quite quite kind of plagued by by anxiety and nerves and and phobias. Um, really, you know, would be terrified of things that change people's faces. So anything that that um, any mask or face paint or anything like that would would just terrify me. I mean, really, really scare me. I'd find it so confusing, the fact that there would be someone whose who's clothes are perhaps recognised, um, but who had this completely different face that had its own persona that wasn't the persona of that person I thought it was, and just found it all terribly, terribly scary. Um, and how did, you, how did you tell adults what you were experiencing, or how did uh, you seek comfort? I think it was very, very obvious. Um, I, you know, I mean, I would scream and, you know, run, <laughs> scream, scream and run and um, make, a, make a noise, probably what would be known as uh, tantrums, I guess. Um, I would refuse to, to go to playgroup or nursery school and just have to be carried in. And um, yeah, I think that I found, I mean, I found a sort of comfort where I, I basically, I couldn't go, I couldn't go, um, to, to public places um, without, <laughs> without wearing a crash helmet and, and dark goggles, <laughs> which, which sounds really... I think you've seen a picture, actually, Sonia. Yeah, yeah. ...of me when I was about four on a roundabout um, with, with goggles on and a crash helmet and everything. But how amazing. You created mm. your own sensory tools to deal with too much information coming at you. Yeah, I think so. And I think also I sort of felt, well, actually, if I look a bit like the things that I'm really scared of, then I'm kind of in some sort of way protected because I'm the same as them, if that makes any sense at all. So I was quite scared of the visors on, on crash helmets, especially motorbike helmets that had yeah. the big dark visors. The clear ones I was just about okay with, and I was fine if people flipped them up. But uh, no, I think it was actually, give, give my mum credit, you know, I think it was her her idea, you know, sort of, you know, getting me a pair of goggles and saying, you know, if you look through these, this is like what people see if they're behind a visor, um, you know, and, and, and so um, I was, it was almost like I was kind of protected from the fear of other things. If, um, I mean, looking back now, I realized that it was just dulling all the sensory stuff, you know, it was yeah. the light and it was kind of providing me with that, that pressure on my, on my head for protection. But um, I mean, that's just one of, you know, one of many, <laughs> many phobias that was kind of, kind of riddled with. And I think a lot, a lot of my anxiety stemmed from, you know, trying to preempt situations and make sure that, that there weren't going to be people there who were dressed in ways that would, that would upset me. Um, and of course, I, I mean, you, your mum very cleverly gave you kind of the goggles to deal with that situation but she wouldn't have known and you didn't really know that you weren't seeing faces in the same way that others probably did I think that was only that so I, I've got yeah I've, um I can never remember the word for it but you'll know Sonia what, <laughs> what's, what's it's it a really called? silly big word isn't it prosopagnosia that's the one um which basically kind of sort of facial blindness so I don't necessarily recognize people when when I see them, even if they're familiar um, people to me. And I think that that first became apparent when I couldn't follow like um, plots and films. I just wasn't able to at all. I could follow cartoons, no problem, but actual films with, with humans in them, I, you know, it would just take a costume change and that person would be someone different. 
I mean, so you can imagine how I got on with uh, sliding doors, if you've seen that. Oh, <laughs> Which is two separate narratives going or on. Or Inception. The... I haven't seen Inter Inception. Oh, I, don't, I, you... don't even bother. It wasn't worth my time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! And then you, another thing you mentioned about primary school was bullying. So, yeah. how? What was the nature of that at primary school? Um, I think that <laughs> I was kind of a bit of a a bit of a goody two shoes. I used to get very very frustrated because um, I was kind of academically quite skilled, but lacked social awareness, um, and I wasn't able to form friendships and I would do things which would annoy other people and the more I tried to impress other people the more I would annoy them and I think it was really moving from I mean I, I grew up in a, in a village in Fife and school there was was tricky for its own reasons but I wasn't really bullied there you know and I, I think I was mm. reasonably well accepted but then moving to a big city and um, and all of a sudden you you know you're the kids who who turns up with plimsolls that you've drawn on, you know, because you think that's cool. And everyone mm. else has got, you know, these flashy trainers with, with air bubbles and things like that. And you haven't got a clue about this, you know, and I, I wasn't into football at all. And I was like the only, the only boy in my class who, who just wasn't interested in, in football and didn't, you know, kind of buy into the culture at all. And I remember making, you know, trying, really wanting to fit in. There was, um, I'd found out that there was an Aberdeen football strip. So that was my kind of like my home team, I guess. Um, there was an Aber Aberdeen football strip um, and the colours were exactly the same as the Celtic. I think it was a third strip and it was, I could buy that for £10, but the Aberdeen one was, I think, £40, 30 or £40. And my mum and dad had given me this £10 allowance to, you know, get a, a shirt for, for PE. And so I bought that thinking, well, it's the same as the Aberdeen shirt. So, you know, I'll look like I'm supporting Aberdeen. People won't notice the badge. And of course, it's that sort of naivety that just, you know, it's just an absolute field day for bullies. <laughs> and of course, all the religious connotations that would get, you know, Celtic <laughs> Rangers, you were completely oblivious to all of that as well. Oh, I had no clue about that at the time. Mm. No, no, no sort of, um, yeah, my social understanding was, was, was quite, was really quite poor and i think that i used to get quite self-righteous about the the fact that well if i'm if i'm in intelligent i'm clever and i can do the work then you know i don't understand why people don't don't like me because i can do all the things that the adults want me to do and yeah. you know sort of i saw this this sort of separation between you know me and my and my peers definitely then um just with the fact that i didn't I didn't fit in at all <laughs> you know there was no there was nothing that I could do to fit in and it seemed that it's, it, it, it's really interesting isn't it there's there's a lot of stuff on social media we've been talking about this haven't we with the coming up to um, yeah. autism awareness week I've noticed lots of stuff and one of the interesting kind of um, sound bites from the autism community is people say they accept people with autism but then they don't really like people who are a bit different or yeah. a bit weird or yeah. who have interests that don't align with theirs yeah. or perhaps who move in a funny way or, and you know, underneath these are all aspects of their autism. Right. Um, so it's that thing, isn't yeah. it? People say they accept autism, but yeah. you know, parts of your, I suppose, commonalities of autism 
people find difficult. Yes. And I think that if, you know, I was always, I was always very intent on being able to do, um, I wanted to be able to do anything that I turned my hand to and I would practice really, really hard at kind of niche sort of things that I would see on TV. So I, I started juggling when I was nine and, you know, I had clubs. I actually had fire, fire clubs at one stage and I would put on these, these shows, you know, in the front garden, wanting people to, you know, want to come and watch me, you oh, know. God. <laughs> you know. Imagine how that one turned. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, people thinking you're really, oh, he thinks he's really up himself. That, and, that, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, I was a juggler and a, you know, pogo sticker. You know? <laughs> I know about your pogo sticking. Bounding Tell us your score on pogo sticking. Oh, I did, um, I did uh, again, when I was nine, I did 5,630 pogos. Um, I love that you remember that. I made myself a certificate. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody else was going to do it for you. Hey. <laughs> so tell me, one of the things, when I was thinking about questions, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, what is your first clear memory? What's a thing you hold from your childhood? Uh, chronologically, I don't actually know. I've got two that, that okay. fall both before I was two because they were both based in, in Glasgow. And one was just, I just remember sitting on top of a washing machine or being sat on top of a washing machine and getting to lick an ice cream. So that was one memory. And the other memory... That sensory explosion, actually. Right. <laughs> the vibration and the taste and yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A feast for all the senses. Um, <laughs> Other, I think the other, um, the other memory that, that I had was um, I actually fed into my first special interest, which was bin lorries or rubbish lorries, um, um, and it was it was being held up. I think it was I think it was my dad holding me up. I'm not sure. And getting to there, were, there was a panel of buttons on the side of a bin lorry, um, which the, the the chaps manning the bin lorry allowed me to to press. Um, and kind of guided me and I just remember this panel of buttons and getting to press it and they, I don't know what it did but it did something and that was really that was tremendously exciting so that set me <laughs> off with kind of different types of bin lorry you had the paper packer and you had the glass guzzler this was just when recycling was coming in you know kind of mid 80s so uh, yeah yeah that was a that was my first kind of special interest stemmed off off of that I, rem I remember a, a boy I worked with years ago in a school called Ash Ashmead and his special interest was recycling and kind of, um, you know, ways of refuge disposal. His, his favourite part of the week when, was when they let him spend time with the premises officer and he could get all the recycling ready right. for when the um, trucks came. Brilliant. Yeah. Mm. And I think, you know, looking at it now, it is kind of, again, it's compartmentalising, isn't it? It's ordering yeah. and sorting. And, and cleaning and... And um, environmentally attuned as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Okay, so when did you first um, begin to have an idea that you were different from other people, that you, that you didn't quite fit in with other kids? Or did you have that feeling? Yeah, yeah, no, I did. And I think it was something that I was really, really aware of from, from very early on. Um, I would say probably three, maybe four, um, sort of playgroup nursery age. I didn't, I didn't like playing with anyone. I really wouldn't, I wouldn't play with anyone. Um, and I wouldn't do things. So I wouldn't, if someone was, you know, if a group were doing Lego, 
even though I loved Lego, I wouldn't do that that thing because I didn't want my my activity to be associated with other people and I wouldn't play. So, so when I started school, I remember just playtimes. I just wanted to sit on the step. There was a little step outside one of the classrooms. I just wanted to sit there for, for playtimes and lunchtimes. And every, you know, every morning, then the nursery nurse would come out, you know, right, Peter, you know, we need to go and play, come and play with your friends, come and play with your, I was just, you know, enjoy yourself. I to, this is my time. This is my break time. You know, you go and have your coffee and I'm going to sit on my step. <laughs> but I didn't want to play. There wasn't a, it really wasn't a desire to actually, you know, have any connection with, um, mm. with children until probably about nine. And that's where it was, it, you know, it was kind of moving to Aberdeen. That was really the kind of the time where I was sort of growing up and actually realizing, oh, these people don't like me. You know, they don't like me. And that's different from them being just different from me. It was and that did you thing. know? Did you know what it was that you did that made them not like you, or, or did were you just mystified? Well, I always, I, I kind of always thought like, oh, I'll get it right, because I think that I was always conscious, like I was making, I was making sort of mistakes in the fact that you know, like I couldn't play football very well, and so I would always let the team down, you know, or um, so, so I kind of things things that I would work really hard and practice, you know, practice on thinking, I'll get this right one day, you know, or, you know, being brought up not to swear. And then obviously swearing in the playground, you know, it held a bit of social currency. And then you go and do that. But because you do that, you go and get, you get told on by one of the other people, you know, who, who was swearing in the first place. And it was that, those things, you, you know, that would be like red rag to a bull, you know, to me, because, I'd be like, well, this is so unjust. You know, I'm just doing what you were kind of like mocking me for not doing, you know, in order to fit in. And then as soon as I do it, you pants and, you know, you go and, you know, go and tell we me. We see that all the time, don't we? We mm. see the kids we go into support doing things that other kids do, but there's something about the way they do it. Other kids can sniff out that it's not quite right for them. Oh, kids are clever. You know, kids yeah. are really, really clever. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. They, 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 you know, you just can't win in a way. They yeah, sneak I, you out and they, they and I, out you, you. Yeah, and you admire so much the people who do seem to win, who always seem to land on their feet, you know, kind of socially. The ones who aren't the coolest, but somehow they somehow coast along without any bother at all, you know, and... Uh, and that was always, you know, I never wanted to, I never wanted to be the popular one, but I wanted to get by, you know, I wanted to get yeah. by bother and hassle, not be particularly involved in people's lives, but I wanted them to like me and accept me. And that was, that was kind of the really important thing that I would always strive for and the frustration of always getting it wrong and not being able to, not being able to let it out at school just meant that as soon as I would come home, you know, my poor, I think my mum, my mum and my sister probably took the um, took the brunt of it. But I was very, very, very angry, you know, as a as a child at home um, as a result. And yeah, because you can't take it out on peers, can you? Because you're all the time you're thinking, I mustn't misstep. I need to right. go under the radar and not do yeah. anything wrong and try and fit in. And you've got to remember as well, my dad was also the chaplain of our school. So it was that was always used as a, you know, um, well, you know, Peter, if you misbehave, what's your father going to think? You know, and it was always used 
in that in that way of like you know his dad's red, dad's reverend black you know so he's got to behave himself and yeah yeah so it was a it's a tricky oh, primary school was miserable <laughs> so was okay fun. how was secondary school any better i think it was actually yeah i mean um i didn't secondary school didn't end very well for me but i do think that i kind of slowly managed to grow into a little bit more of 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 my of myself and a lot of that was actually down to to music uh, getting involved in um uh you know learning several different instruments and um i was in quite a lot of orchestras and, and bands and things and my social life didn't really come from i mean i didn't really have a social life but you know my social kind of interactions didn't come so much from the organized side of things so the the orchestras and the concert bands and things that wouldn't really play much into into my kind of um, my social side of things but when i was about i think i was 13 i set up my first band and i chose other people to be in my band and because i had an electric guitar and because i'd bothered to learn you know how to play it to a you know to a reasonable <laughs> a reasonable standard we're not talking virtuoso or anything like that but to a passable standard and you know other people were intrigued and i think that bought me quite a lot of you know social currency social yeah social kudos social currency that's it yeah yeah how valuable that can be yeah as an in yeah so did you have a friendship group at secondary school not and not a close one at all um not really not really i had people that i had people that tolerated me which was really nice you know like i felt i felt kind of i felt more um maybe not celebrated the right maybe accepted for who i was at secondary school um a little bit again almost almost all to do with you know band stuff and also as well i think going to secondary school i was no longer I was no longer the clever kid. Um, so I was in the top kind of sets for things. But then you realise that you're, you know, I went to a massive secondary school with like 1300s. It's a bigger um, pond. It's a bigger pond, right. isn't it? Because the pond's bigger. You've got five or six people who are in the same position as you. And all of a sudden, oh, you're maybe fourth or fifth in the class. You know, you're not that, you're not that one that everyone hates because they're getting, you know, 100% the whole time and, and stuff. But all of a sudden you're kind of, yeah, it's it's a more kind of realistic placing. You find yourself in a, a a situation where you might be you might be top in one subject, but you're certainly not going to be top across every subject. And uh, yeah, I think that was that was actually quite a a social relief. Actually, just yeah. So you were you were able, you were intelligent, um, you were you know obviously marked out as one of the intelligent kids at primary presumably um, you could cope with the academic demands of secondary school and did really well. <laughs> um, I think I could in first and second year secondary school. So year seven and eight, um, I found them realistic, like a realistic challenge. Um, and it was quite nice in a way because I didn't really feel primary school wasn't that challenging. Um, but all of a sudden, your workload increases and you're having to learn a range of different things. And all of a sudden there are things that you're not, you're not tremendous at and you don't really have a great knowledge in and um, you might struggle a bit. So I found chemistry really difficult, uh, for example, and, and history, I just wasn't interested. I just wasn't interested in. So I didn't, wasn't doing so well in, in that. 
Um, but no, as the as the work kind of mounted and I was being predicted, um, you know, being predicted really good grades across the board, there was so much pressure to keep up with the standard that was expected of me. Um, and I think that along with kind of the rehearsals for the music side of things and stuff, I just felt if I'm not, if I'm not doing homework, then I'm practicing. And if I'm not practicing, I'm doing homework. And there are all these expectations upon me and, and obviously kind of being brought up with the ethic of, you know, you do your very best, you know, and, and you know, coming from a Christian background as well, you know, you do your very best because ultimately you're doing this, you know, to serve, to serve God and to lead as a good example to have that kind of pressure on you and to never have like had to utter the, the words, I'm not coping, you know, or to explain, listen, I need some help here, or this is just a bit difficult for me. That whole pressure just accumulated and accumulated over, um, over a couple of years. And I ended up um, when I was 15, Sonia, I ended up having a, you know, having a full blown kind of breakdown. Um, and I left, I left school at 15 with no qualifications at all. Didn't stay for standard grades, which are the kind of GCSE equivalents in, in Scotland. Um, I was just out with with nothing to nothing to show, you know, nothing to show for for anything. Um, so it kind of crashed and burned a bit in 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 that in that whole process. It's so scary, isn't it? Because especially in the last year. We've seen a massive increase in referrals to our team for young people who have kind of crashed and burned and just stopped going to school, yeah. whose anxiety has just taken hold and their lives have just shrunk mm. into, into their bedrooms. And yeah. it, it, it's so awful, isn't it, that we still don't know any better, that we're not able to support these young people any better, yeah. you know, 15, 20 years on. I mean, I know you didn't have a diagnosis at the time, no. but did you tell anyone before it all came to a, a huge kind of? No, I don't think so, because I think I'd, I'd felt like I was actually, do you know, I, I think I had so much shame around primary school. I think what I didn't mention um, in primary school was that I school refused quite a lot. Um, I didn't go to didn't go to school. I would run away. If I got to school, you know, had a big school that, that just had one of those fields that goes on forever. And it was quite easy just to run and run and go to the back entrance. There you go. And, um, you know, and I, I've kind of feigned, feigned illness for, for three months um, so that I didn't have to attend primary school because it was just so upsetting for me. And um, so I think that was that. Was that, that was the bullying and the phobias and the stress. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it was it was that thing of like I'd rather I'd rather kind of like eat one piece of toast and one digestive biscuit a day and lose weight than you know and and to prove that I'm to prove that I'm yeah. you know um, then, and presumably your family really thought there was something physically. Yeah, I remember the first time. I remember after about I think it was after about three or four weeks. I remember them them taking me to the doctor and saying you know something's not right. We need to get this sorted out. And I remember just thinking, I'm going to be busted. I'm going to be busted here. You oh, because you knew, yeah. Because I, I knew. And it was obviously, it was that, again, it was that big shame thing of like, you know, ultimately you're lying. You know, you're lying to, to um, just to cope and just to survive. So I think that going back to your, your point on, on um, secondary school, 
Um, I think because I actually managed to get to a stage where I was coping and where I was okay, I didn't want to admit this, you know, like I need help. And, uh, you know, I, I found that, you know, just staying quiet about things and just trying to, just trying to bury everything was, was kind of, it just ultimately kept people off my case, um, which, which is just what I wanted really. I just didn't want to. And be- presumably you didn't really know where it was heading. You know what I, I mean? Know, yeah. I mean, I saw for ages that I, I kind of was always thinking in the back of my mind, how am I going to sustain this? How am I going to sustain this? How am I going to keep this going? Um, but then I always kind of felt, oh, there'll be a way, you know, there'll be a way or you'll grow into the workload or something. And I just didn't, you know, I just didn't, I just didn't manage it. And I think it wasn't actually the work as much as the expectation upon me. Um, I think individual subjects, I probably could have, probably could have got through, but it was just the darkness of the, you know, just feeling like there's so much potential for disappointment if you mess this up. And, and no one said and your that. perception, your perception of what you could manage. We often hear this, don't we? Professionals saying, oh, they, they're very able for that. They're well able for that. This is totally within their capability. But if you don't feel it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I didn't have, I didn't necessarily have the ambitions to, you know, I didn't want to be, I wasn't like, I wasn't that, you know, kind of wanting to be a, I wanted, I really wanted to be a car designer, um, you know, when I was, when I was kind of 12, 13, um, and then I just wanted to be a rock and roll star. You know, that's what I wanted. That was, that's what I wanted. You know, I, I grew up in the Britpop era. And so, you know, Oasis were my, my kind of. Oasis. Oasis. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, that, that was, that was what I wanted. I wanted to be a musician for a living and, and you know, preferably a rock and roll star. That's. That was what I wanted. I didn't have the ambition of kind of being a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, an accountant or whatever else, you know, anything sensible. Um, well, can I just ask, when you had the proclaimers right there for you, why would you look to Oasis? <laughs> Are you mad? <laughs> yeah, ask myself the same question nowadays. Yeah. 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 Look where yeah. they are now, yeah, I know. Who had the longevity? It's just <laughs> well, me. I can't tell them apart, Sonia. I think it must be my facial. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could ask one of them not to wear glasses. That would help, wouldn't it? That's a good idea, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it all went horribly wrong for you at secondary school. But it's interesting that, I mean, we say this to a lot of our families, don't we? You don't have to do... Um, academic study and pass exams at 16 if it's not right for you then if there are other things like your mental health and your well-being that are more important then that's what we need to be safeguarding and you know supporting i hope you enjoyed listening to sonia and pete as much as i did the full interview is available to watch on the drumbeat outreach instagram at drumbeat underscore outreach In the second part of the interview, Sonia and Pete talk a little more about Pete receiving his autism diagnosis as a young man and the impact that this had. Part two will be in a future episode of the broadcast. So finally, for episode one, we are into what will become a weekly recommendations feature. This is where I get to share with you guys what I've been reading, listening to or watching lately. My first recommendation is, in fact, another podcast that I discovered over lockdown called 1800 Seconds on Autism. 
It's a really fun and insightful look at autism presented by two autistic hosts, and I've had a lot of fun listening to it. It's available on BBC Sounds app, or if you're a podcast nerd like myself, you will find it on whatever podcast app you're using. So that's it for episode one. I hope you enjoyed listening to Sonia, Pete and myself. And in future episodes, you will hear from other members of the team and potentially some guests from outside of the team as well. As this is just episode one and we are finding our feet a little bit, I can't say with certainty when episode two will be released. But do subscribe to the podcast if you're using a podcast app so it pops onto your device as and when it arrives when i am really interested in something i i get super focused on that and i would hear the underground hovering across the line i would mimic that sound i think in pictures i don't think in language what you probably don't know is that my brain is different than yours because I'm autistic.